journal entry number 18, July 24th, 2020, 4.30 p.m. After all this time, it seems my journey may finally be coming to an end. It feels like only a week ago that I was casually recording my local radio show from my bedroom, not a care in the world. Perhaps that's because it was only a week ago. <laughs> Simpler times, I suppose. In just seven days, I found myself on a globe-trotting odyssey in search of a once-dear friend, all based on a potentially bogus tip. From the familiarity of Los Angeles to the gothic skyscrapers of Montreal, to the cultural hubs of Sao Paulo, to the white sand beaches of Zanzibar, dense jungles of Borneo, the packed streets of Hong Kong, and finally now, I may have found who I was looking for in this small village just on the outskirts of Toledo, España. I just hope that tip was credible. I hope he's actually here. I hope... I hope he remembers me. <laughs> A man can drive himself mad ruminating on what-ifs and I-hopes, though. It's time to close the book on this journey. It's time for him to come home. Enrique, este es el lugar. Debes parar aquí, por favor. ¿Aquí? Sí, sí, sí. ¿Quieres que te espere en caso de que él no esté allí? No, amigo mío. No hay un problema. Toma esto. Gracias, Pactón. Ya, ándale. Hola, señor. Eh, sí, puedo ayudarle. Encantado de conocerte. Soy un viajero de los Estados Unidos. ¿Sabes si un hombre llamado Glenn trabaja en esta granja? Uh, Glenn, sí, él está por allá. Tip was right. It's really him. Uh, muchas gracias, señor. Sí, sí. Just one more scoop of feed for you girls today. Hey, hey, go on, Lupe, get. You've had plenty already. At least let Flora get some. It's never easy with chickens, is it? <laughs> you can say that again. I'd rather tend to cows all day than deal with chickens for even ten minutes. Wait a second. So, it's you. Hello, Glenn. It's good to see you again, old friend. I wish I could say the feeling was mutual, Paxton. I really do. <laughs> so why don't you? Paxton, I feel terrible saying this after you've come all this way, but I really think you should leave. Not without some closure first. 
Glenn, we were together through thick and thin for over a year. Half Past Five was just as much your show as it was mine. Then, suddenly, not even eight weeks ago, you all but vanish into thin air without so much as a word of goodbye. Now I find you tending a farm in the Spanish countryside. How am I supposed to feel, Glenn? What am I supposed to think? That someone I once called, and still do call, a dear friend just decided to turn over a new leaf and take on a new soulfully fulfilling career path? It's a change I'd love to support if I was given so much as a moment's notice. Friends don't just up and move without nary a word, Glenn. I, I figured you knew as much. <laughs> That's rich coming from you, Paxton. It really is. I always knew you were a bit, shall we say, emotionally unavailable, occasionally naive, empathetically speaking, but I never figured you to be an outright hypocrite. And yet, here you are, proving me wrong. Glenn... What are you talking about? Do I really have to spell it out for you? You abandoned me, Paxton. You left me to fend for myself. One day everything's going smoothly, I've got a hugely successful radio show that funds a lifestyle most people only dream of. A home in the hills, a beamer, designer drugs. You know, the typical lifestyle of a public radio host. Then, one day I get word that Half Past Five is over, out of nowhere, that you abandoned the work we were doing to pursue a new project, some show called The Quarantine Kids or whatever. Uh, socially distanced. Uh, sure, fine, socially distanced. Point is, Paxton, I don't think you ever once considered what impact ending Half Past Five had on me. I had to sell the house. They repoed my car after I started missing payments. I picked up a debilitating glue addiction. My life in the States wasn't sustainable. I was driving down a road to nowhere and doing well over 65. This farm? This country? This was my last shot at a return to normalcy. You want to talk about friends abandoning friends? Sure, Paxton, let's talk about it. But don't pretend you're some kind of hapless, unwitting victim here. You hurt me. <laughs> no, no, that's putting it lightly. You killed me. Or the man I once was, anyway. My life in España is a chance, probably my only chance, at starting over. Please, don't sabotage it. I see. Glenn, I'm, I'm sorry that Half Past Five's abrupt end had such a calamitous impact on you. I... Paxton! Are you listening to yourself? Even now, you continue only to prove my point about your hypocrisy. Consider your choice of language. I'm sorry the show's ending had such an impact on you. You still aren't accepting fault here. You refuse to claim responsibility. Glenn, I... I'm sorry I ended the show prematurely and sidetracked... No, you're right, let's call it what it is. Ruined your life. I suppose I got lost in what I wanted to do for me by ending the show and never once considered what that might mean for you. Nothing I can say or do can ever make it up to you. But my god, if I don't hope that there's some way I can ever possibly hope to begin to claim so much as an ounce of your forgiveness again. You're my friend. I don't want to lose you again. What did you hope to gain by finding me here? Closure? Was that it? I don't know. Well, whatever it was, I hope you found it. Come back to the station, Glenn. 
come join my new show. My co-host Justin and I would welcome your presence, and I'm sure the listeners would too. There's a future for socially distanced. There is. And there's a future for you too. Don't make promises you can't keep. I wouldn't dream of it. So what do you say, Glenn? Paxton, my life is here. I'd love to return to radio, but I've got a job here. I have a family. Oh, es magnífico, Ramonito. Ahora vuelve a la casa y levante antes de la cena. Sí, papá. My son. He's adorable. <laughs> he is. <laughs> he really is. Paxton, I'm... I'm sorry for what I said before. You're not a hypocrite. You're a good man. Thank you for coming. Oh, it, it, it means the world. I wish you all the best of luck in your future. And I you, my friend. Oh, uh, who's this? Uh, hola, ¿cómo está? Eh, bien, bien, gracias. Bien, uh, ¿habla inglés? Ah, uh, sí, sí, ah. Uh, I am Agent Salazar with the Department of Foreign Affairs. We've received word that you traveled to Spain from the U.S. about eight weeks ago, despite the European Union's travel restrictions on the U.S. as a result of the recent COVID-19 crisis. In addition to this, we also have received word that you are working here on a farm without a proper work visa. Do you mind if we step inside so I may ask you a few questions? You know, that would be that would be great, absolutely. Let me just take a few steps over here and Paxton, quick, throw dirt in his eyes. What? Don't ask questions, just do it. Yeah. Ah, mis ojos. Oh god, why did I just do that? Run! Hey, stop immediately! Keep running! Oh god, why does he have a gun? I don't know, but quick, get in the car. Drive! Ah, they got away. This happens every time. Man, I really need to stop walking to all my criminal investigations. That was terrifying. It sure was. Hey, so by the way, we're definitely wanted felons in Spain now. That offer about co-hosting your show in the States, that's still on the table, right? Sure. Fantastic! Home sweet home. Well, here's the studio. Wow, it's your bedroom. Wait, is the studio still closed? Yep. And the station is probably not reopening anytime soon, no. So COVID is still ravaging the country, yes. 
and people are not wearing masks or staying indoors now. And this nation has become an absolutely hellish dystopian nightmare, yes. Cool, great. Well, I'm going to go crash on your couch and raid your fridge then. Uh, have a good show. Wait, I, I didn't say you could live here. Why did I ask him to come back? Whatever. Uh, let's just start the show already. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Socially Distanced. Uh, that describes both the title of this show and uh, our general day-to-day lives, which is what the title of the show is meant to reflect. I don't. I didn't need to clarify that for you. You, you guys I, can figure that out. I feel, I feel like the people who listen would have caught on to that by now or perhaps, you know, understood it. This is radio after all. Actually, no, I guess they could be listening to it as a podcast after the fact. But anyway, yes, the title of the show does reflect the fact that it's the title of the show and the conditions of its uh, production. And that's going to do it for us this week. All right, thanks so much for tuning in, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Uh, kidding aside... Uh, I am Paxton Wright, one of your two co-hosts, and the other one uh, who is socially distanced from me is... Justin Kiever. I am the socially distanced co-host. And I am not, I suppose, then? does I think we're both socially distanced, technically. See, that's the fun thing, is I can say I'm the socially distanced co-host, and I actually get to play with that duality of being, you know, a socially distanced co-host and a socially distanced co-host. Uh, yeah, so just a lot of fun wordplay here it's, on socially distanced. Uh, fun is certainly one word to describe it, um, but it's definitely wordplay. I can, I can, <laughs> I can uh, cop to that much. Uh, anyhow, what, what's new, champ? <laughs> I'm not going to call you champ Talk anymore. To me like I'm your dog. <laughs> Come on, slugger. Lay it on me. <laughs> uh, you know, not much. Uh, the same. The same things are happening, which, yeah, I don't know. I watched some TV shows, which we're going to get into. Yes, I've done the same. Uh, <laughs> and we will get into those as well. Uh, I, yeah, we are really in this like um, Groundhog Day scenario because our, we, I believe we had the conversation on the show last week of like, there isn't a lot to talk about these days in our lives. Kind of the same old, same old, because that's a result of quarantine. And here we are uh tiptoeing around having that exact same conversation again um yeah i don't know i went to the grocery store and then like realized the person that went in right before me wasn't wearing a mask and then like right in that moment i got like a news notification on my phone that just said like orange county coronavirus coronavirus cases are spiking i was just like cool that's great you know that (laughs) that's in that that's a that's a fun time uh I uh, had a day. Um, I'm a little frazzled. I'm a little. Uh, I'm a little. I'm a little bit drained as I've been taking care of an infant all day. Um, my brother recently had a child, um, and so uh, being that he and his wife uh, both work, uh, they need someone to come and take care of the kid throughout the day. And while they have also been very good about social distancing, like being a parent is incredibly hard and so i bet yeah i that's what people keep telling me uh and so i uh, i popped on over there to take care of uh the the five four month old four month old i think wow. um and it was a joy but it was uh boy just to do it for a few hours absolutely draining um really begs the question of 
just how in the heck people can do it 24-7 for X long years. Uh, uh, Genuinely no idea. I mean, at least the kid gets older. You have that much, but then the kid becomes 12. So does it really get better? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, say no. Like, the, the thing that I was kind of thinking was um, I was talking to a friend's uh, cousin once and the cousin had kids and uh what she said was she was actually like really happy she was like basically yeah like all of my kids are like at the age now so around like nine to twelve or it's like and she's like yeah they're all the age now where you can have a conversation with them and i was just like yeah you know what like yeah you have about nine years of work and then suddenly the kids become people and then you can actually speak to them and i guess like that is a reward in and of itself if the kids are interesting which i guess is up to the parent to a large degree huh i suppose so because boy i knew some uninteresting kids growing up but i knew some cool ones and some of those cool ones remain friends to this day uh and then this one is my niece so unless she like you know drives a school bus off a cliff like i'll probably love her unconditionally um but she'll probably be cool too. She's got cool parents. You'll you'll go back in two months, and the niece will develop like negative opinions about Clone High, and I'll be like, "No, <laughs> no cutting no. you out." <laughs> I'm I'm canceling this niece from my life. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, well, speaking of good, uh, good point to hop into sort of our story for this week. Uh, so we're we're I guess uh, like a week and a half late on this story ish, um, but. Still a pretty exciting one, and we didn't really get the chance to cover it last week, so here we are this week doing it. Um, MTV is back, baby. MTV is... Uh, Good again, uh, Awu. Exactly, and what more do you need? Uh, they are rebooting. It was announced about two weeks ago. Um, we are getting reboots of Beavis and Butthead for two full seasons, after they rebooted it once already, they very briefly rebooted it in like the early 10s for like a season, but they're doing it again. Um, yeah, two, uh, two seasons and spinoffs have, and, uh, and various spinoffs have been greenlit. Uh, Clone High, which is one of my favorite shows of all time, uh, which really never got its moment in the sun, uh, has been announced for a, for a re- reboot. Um, I think the, the network and uh release date is uh 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 unannounced as of right now but what we do know is that the original series creators uh phil lord and chris miller um who are probably much better known for their more recent work they've done in hollywood in projects like the lego movie spider-man into the spider-verse and both 21 and 22 jump street um Clone High was their original uh, series that they created back in the early aughts, I think 2000 or 99 even. Um, and it was sort of their first major project before everything else. Uh, so they're the, returning. The first thing they were directors on, apparently. Yeah, yeah I think so. Huh. I know they'd been, they'd, I believe they'd been writing partners for a considerable amount of time before Clone High, but um, it was sort of, the, I think, their highest profile thing they'd done up until that point. Um, and it was still incredibly low profile, low budget flash animation on MTV. Um, but produced by Bill Lawrence, who's known as the, you know, for producing Scrubs. Uh, it's a, uh, yeah, great, great show. Um, what else has come back? Daria is getting a spinoff um, 
Eon Flux. They're attempting to do a live-action reboot again. It went so well the first time. It went without a hitch back in, what, 2003. But, uh, you know, you know see see what they can do i don't get why they wouldn't animate it the original show is like a feast for the eyes but eh, uh, who knows it, it is what it is but as of right now point being uh 90s animation is back and that's uh that's pretty cool 90s adult animation more specifically um fingers crossed for you know the head and the oblongs and the max and some other shows but we're we're headed in the right direction right now i am i am uh eager about what the future holds here yeah that is uh it is exciting to see things that don't look like uh that star trek show that's like out now on cbs access or whatever which i i I admittedly have not watched but that's because it looks terrible (laughs) the the picard one or the discovery there's a no, lot of uh, bad discovery Star Trek like discovery right like the uh the the animated one like the one that like uh wait have you not seen ads it's for this animated yes, i didn't know a, they were there's doing an animated star trek show that is only uh that like picard is only out through cbs's online thing oh so and it's got an audience of like 12 yeah like yeah. it's uh it just like it i mean as people have like really readily pointed out from like the instant this thing was announced like it just it looks like every other animated show that's out right now which is to say that kind of like that large-eyed sort of you know kind of simplistic looking like vaguely rick and morty-esque but at least like rick and morty has like a little grime to it like it's not that good like 90s like grime oh uh, yeah it i'm i'm looking at it now it is like the utmost uh uh generic late 10s early 20s cal arts animation yeah and um and like comparing that to something like like i watched a few episodes of clone high for the first time actually last night and was actually struck by and charmed by some of the cheapness of it oh yeah uh, Clone High is like a show that era of animation is um, for like me as I've, I've mentioned on this show in the past uh, I'm like a I'm a cartoonist um, I do a lot of character design and uh, that era of animation specifically is like probably the biggest influence on my work um, Clone High aesthetically I think is a really gorgeous looking show despite again despite a lot of the inherent cheapness um, Clone High's absolute uh flippance towards perspective i think is great the fact that yeah. that like her, there's no such thing as a horizon line on that show that the none of the artists on that show are working on grids it is just <laughs> like hey put the character wherever it like it but like the bold the bold slick lines of that era of flash animation you see stuff like that and like the clerks tv show very underrated show by the way but beside the point um like that is uh such a unique aesthetic that i think uh was way better at having um having having uh i guess um devices is not the right word but um elements having elements that are consistent from project to project but by and large i think are much more personal to different artists vision than a lot of what we've seen now with um sort of the oversaturation of the um 
really easily animatable, but sort of devoid of personality uh, Cal art style that has sort of uh, become the norm as of late. Um, and Clone High, I think, is really exemplary of that. I, I think that's uh, one thing that the show really... Yeah, like like the thing that really... I, I mean, there's like... I don't know. Like, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not speaking as an expert, which I feel like uh, you're more of an expert than me when it comes to kind of like recognizing animation styles. But in, in, uh, in Clone High, like there's something about like the sort of like the very sparse backgrounds that occasionally feels like genuinely like it reminds me, it almost reminds me a little bit of like German expressionism, honestly, just like these like really kind of like bold abstractions in the background that really don't create a coherent space. But it just like, you know, and maybe it's only in retrospect that like that kind of like gains, you know, that we gain in like an aesthetic appreciation for that kind of thing. But man, yeah, it just looks good. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I was just struck by like, I was just like suddenly reminded like, oh, right. Yeah. Like Powerpuff Girls existed. And uh, oh man, the, uh, the home for imaginary friends. I cannot remember the actual full title of that show, but just, yeah, it just reminded me of like that, like that spirit of animation, like TV animation specifically, that is now just kind of gone. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it is, it's a sad thing to see go, especially now that the actual um, program Flash is, if not dead, very close to death. Like, I think it, about to vanish. It really represents like the, the a bygone era. It is like a time capsule of animation that I hope one day we'll be able to emulate in television and, and animation on a whole again. But as of right now, it's, um, yeah, it's absent and... And that's not to suggest there isn't brilliant animation out there right now. I like Rick and Morty is a beautifully animated show, but yeah. the character design is um, personally, in my opinion, it leaves a lot to be desired. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of shows on TV do right now. Uh, we have to take a quick break here, uh, but we will return with more hijinks and hoot nannies very momentarily. All right. See you in a bit. Stay tuned. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and you're listening to Socially Distanced. I'm Justin Kiewer, and I'm here with my co-host. Uh, Paxton Wright. And uh, yeah, we're just coming back from a discussion about Clone High and more broadly the upcoming reboot of a lot of like MTV animations from like the uh, late 90s and early aughts, I believe. And yeah, now we just wanted to, um, we're going to come back to that conversation about reboots. Uh, but before we do that, we want to talk about another reboot, which is the thing that I've been watching uh, immense amounts of over this last week, which is the TV show Hannibal. 
yes, which I also, uh, per your mentioning that you've been watching Hannibal, uh, caught the pilot episode of last night. Um, and without getting too much into it, because I'm more curious to hear your thoughts first as someone that's pretty well into the series. But I will say, uh, heard it was good. Still very pleasantly surprised by, by what I saw. Yeah, it was a show that I heard good things about for a while, um, like for a long time, because I actually bought, uh, back when um, we could go uh, shopping and Black Friday was a thing, I actually got the first season of Hannibal uh, on sale at Best Buy without ever having watched it before. Because I was just like, yeah, I hear this is really good. I should watch this. Then I never did until it was on Netflix many years later. Uh so yeah, like I did not catch Hannibal in its original run and am now, you know, I'm even behind it being on Netflix. Like I think it's been on Netflix for a few weeks at this point, but it has been, you know, seeing it's gotten that like Netflix bump that I feel like shows like Breaking Bad got too. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah. That somehow Avatar The Last Airbender crazily got recently. Really? Somehow they just added it huh. to Netflix and now avatar is like back in the year 2020 but <laughs> sure man just uh wow these things just never die um yeah really, really just thinking about reboots and uh and like the the condition that reboots uh perhaps indicate but yeah um so i've been watching hannibal and i feel like there are probably i don't know if we, we have any like frustrated fans of hannibal who watched it when it was actually airing on network tv um also i cannot believe this show is on network tv oh i was blown away in in episode one how it is you can see at least just based on that pilot i don't know about the progression of the show but there is so much dancing around anything that ultimately really is probably too gratuitous for tv but just like the grotesqueness is all just barely out of focus, just barely out of frame enough to like slide. Yeah, like there's, um, like it gets real graphic. And, but like there's, okay, I'll put it this way. There is a, um, how, uh, I'm not going to get too into detail, but there is uh, some footage in uh, late season two of uh, a guy uh, cutting off his own face. And it's like, and the things like it almost like there is something about the way that it frames it. Uh, it might just be the actor who is doing it, who is Michael Pitt turning in this like incredibly campy, like unhinged performance as this like crazy billionaire meat industry guy. But there's something about like the way they frame it where cause his face is like completely in shadow. You know what's going on, but it's also like it, it is as if they are like they are very deliberately like almost playing it for a laugh. And like the laugh is like this incredibly dark laugh at like the boundaries of what network TV can do, which I feel oh, yeah. like is like a lot of like what makes the show interesting to me uh, because it's a show that is, I feel like, um, like there are. I'm only so I'm only two seasons into it, uh, and I feel like the thing that like informs a lot of the fan around the show, which is the relationship between uh, Hannibal and his uh, rival slash protege Will Graham, is like the is the relationship that develops like really uh, apparently more overt romantic overtones in uh, season three, even though like they're definitely there, like that like kind of like uh, really this like 
really messed up kind of like budding queer romance is definitely there in seasons it, one and two but it's like it's palpable in the first episode enough yeah oh yeah yeah totally yeah. and um and yeah like i think it like that becomes like really the focus of the show in season three and like a thing that like season one does uh I think that like really only season one does is that like season one is a procedural like cop show basically you know will graham is a special agent for the fbi he's a you know uh the, the main character will graham uh who is uh who meets uh hannibal in the first episode he is we, we, a, we have not actually clarified it's pretty obvious i think to anyone listening but hannibal Lecter. oh right yeah we've never yes. said the name yeah we didn't actually say this yes <laughs> like this is based on the character hannibal lecter the uh one of the villains from the very famous film silence of the lambs uh and also the the book and film red dragon uh yeah there is um so yeah like it uh man what a weird disgusting interesting and kind of like in conflict with itself in a certain way show because yeah like it starts as a procedural and it, basically about halfway through season two it stops being a procedural uh which actually is kind of marked by the death of like one of the uh secondary characters who is like one of the uh like one of one of the fbi people but um yeah, and it's interesting because, yeah, it starts as this procedural show about, like, an, a psychological profiler who's working with the FBI to catch killers, and he is, uh, like, his whole his whole deal is that he has this, like, you know, extreme empathy where he can, like, identify with anyone, so he uses that to identify with killers and solve their crimes, but that empathy, um, but that, like, you know, that sort of, like, extreme empathy makes him unstable, and then he is directed to a psychiatrist to be cleared for duty. And that psychiatrist is Hannibal Lecter. And that ends up kind of like setting off what the show is. And yeah, it's really, again, I can't stress enough. Like what there are things, there are multiple things that are really interesting about this show to me. And the first is the fact that like, Oh yeah, this is a network TV show and it's a network TV show that is, this is perhaps an on the nose metaphor tearing at itself constantly because there are um because yeah like it's procedural where really the show is never it's never that interested in the mechanics of the procedural because it's a show where where i feel like the way most like tv procedurals work is there's a crime there's a theory the first theory is wrong and then like the second or third theory is correct and it's about like i i have this idea of what's happening oh something is you know something has occurred within like the, the, the plot where now i don't know what's happening and i have to like you know reevaluate the evidence based on that now to just to to put a, a pin in that mm -hmm. real quick say so i'm curious but when you say procedural are you talking about crime shows on a whole or like when you because like technically both true detective and csi are both procedurals but csi is crime of the week whereas true detective is, is oh uh good sweeping. yes good point good point um it is well it's kind of both where but like in i would i would relate it more to something like csi mm-hmm like network non HBO TV procedurals crime of the week where there is kind of an overarching plot line or there are plot lines that extend beyond a single episode, but it's primarily interested in like the, the killer, like the, the evil killer that is specific to this one episode. Um, but the thing that it does with like 
the thing that it does early on in each episode is that basically uh will will you know do his like uh thing where he reconstructs the act of like committing the murder he'll say the line this is my design and i cheer because that line becomes a joke after a while to be honest uh and then he basically says some kind of like thing that sounds like wild conjecture and he's completely right like everyone is always 100% right about their first instinct about like what the killer is, like what the killer is doing and why they're doing it like the show is just it does not care about like giving you this like interesting mystery and it's a lot more interested in its like in its arc of Hannibal manipulating and seducing Will and doing it basically through the medium of these murders and like how these murders are like always being framed in terms of uh in terms of the relationships between characters which is the other thing that ends up being really interesting about the show not the fact that like the murders are reflective of the relationships between characters because that just sounds kind of you know on the nose and silly but the fact that they are being made to be that way. Like this is a show that is very interested in the relationships of power between uh, psychiatrists and their patients, hmm. which, and the, the, and the, like the thing that is really wild to me about the show is that this is clearly someone who I feel like I could have a conversation with the show's uh, showrunner, Brian Fuller and ask him some things about like Foucault and Deleuze. And he would have some very strong thoughts. Like this is a, like, I'm going to ask you to clarify what that is because I, I have no idea. Yes, yeah, I, I was about to. Um, so there's there's this movement that happens in French theory, in French, like, capital T academic theory in, like, the 1960s. Uh, like, uh, it's basically anti-psychiatry that is being very critical of the power relationship between the psychiatrist and the patient. And when you say like, psychiatry, do you mean, do, I'm sorry, but do you mean like uh, psychiatrists and specifically the person that prescribes medication or, or mental health professionals and patients on a whole? Uh, mental health professionals and, uh, pa- and yeah, on the, on the whole. Okay. Like that's actually, um, which is a thing that like the, the show kind of like, that's the thing that I would actually catch in like in Hannibal the show too. Like they would talk about psychiatry and I would just go like, isn't this more psychology because they're just talking like there's no medicine really exchanging hands here. So like, it, it's like more of a kind of like general discipline, I guess. But uh, yeah, like the thing that happens is that you get writers who are very critical of that power relationship. And uh, so uh, Michel Foucault writes this book. Uh, uh, well, he, well, it's released in, um, uh, it's released in in the states as in like an English translation as Madness and Civilization, and it's this like history of the creation of madness as a concept. Uh, and uh, Deleuze and this uh, guy Gilles Deleuze and his writing partner Felix Gatsari uh, write a they write this book Anti Oedipus, which is this uh, big critique of Freud. Um, and, uh, among other things it's a wild book that uh is really difficult but yeah like there's um put it this way th- there's this concept that Deleuze and Gattari come up with at one point called becoming animal and it's this basically an idea of resisting the limitations of being human by becoming animal by like releasing yourself from like the confines of language anyway um and it's like the Mitsubishi is kind of like a liberatory concept so in season two of Hannibal there is a dude who uh, thinks he's an, uh, like, who like wants to be an animal 
and he makes himself like an like a bio like, like a mechanical animal suit uh which is honestly really funny and <laughs> this um, is going in a direction i didn't anticipate this show and going. and he says over and over this is my becoming and i'm just kind of like I, yeah this is a show that is way too interested in psychiatry to not know exactly what it's doing because it's yeah um anyway so like and the thing that like happens in the show that's really interesting is that basically every like it's a show that really is about the power relationships that are contained in every conversation like it takes that thing that procedurals do where you know you have like co-workers kind of talking about you know murder together and like being like you know fun and co-workery and then it like it really makes it so like you have to it makes you so aware of like every single uneven relationship that's happening between every single character and it's really effective like it's really effective in doing that and it makes it um and, and yeah it just, it just gives this kind of like meta weight to every single conversation um and the other thing it does like in terms of like playing with like that and also playing with like the the format of the procedural is that it gives you these characters that like feel like they do not belong it's so like Paxton. What did you make of the, uh, the the those like the secondary FBI characters, the the people who aren't Lawrence Fishburne, who like work on the crime scenes? I thought, yeah, I actually, that's a really great question because I was sort of unconsciously thrown off by them a little bit in that they felt like network TV uh, detective yeah. characters. Like yeah. they have like the kind of brash uh, the the brash guy who's kind of a, a jerk and you know he's got he's mm-hmm. like kind of schlubby a little bit and they have like the the go-getter like precocious lady who's like ah i'm on the case kind of person and it's like they yeah. all felt kind of like hokey characters compared to everyone else surrounding them who like yeah, yeah. like you have yeah you have like the like in super intense like mads mickelson just like just clearly having a great time being incredibly evil and uh then you have you know will and even like lawrence fishburne like is kind of doing the like the boss you know like the boss man and inspector thing but he's still more convincing then you have these characters who are like cracking wise and like making jokes at the crime scene and it's just like it's this like really like like it threw me at first because i was just like oh there are like two different shows happening here is your is your read that that is because again I'm one episode in I I don't know really how the show evolves and handles these characters is your read that that is like an overt choice on the parts of uh of uh, uh the creators or do you think that is something more akin to network meddling or do you think it's clumsy writing what like where where does what is your take on on the dramatic parallels between how these characters are written and presented uh compared to one another i think um i think that like massive contrast is somewhat intentional i think it's somewhat like this needs to be i think it's also like network meddling i think it's making the best of network meddling Mm -hmm. to be honest like i think it's like really like okay like we have sold this as a procedural or like i mean i don't know the history of the production of the show but but take um excuse me take uh 
that Snowpiercer show, for example, that is like out yeah, now. Yeah, I forgot that existed. Yeah, yeah. What's going uh, on? So so did everyone, and part of like why that show was basically was DOA was the fact that it became like after its pilot, I think, became a police procedural. Because Interesting. Like, that, yeah, because like that's uh, and because th- that's the format that sells. You know, like that's like the thing is like NCIS. I know was for many years like the most watched TV show. Like everyone wants their NCIS. Everyone wants their like safe procedural that can go on for a million seasons. Um, and the thing is like, you can kind of, I read, I don't know, like I, again, I don't know the history of the production of the show, but it really does feel like there's like a pressure to make this a procedural. And there is a sort of, but there's also like a toying with that limit. So really for me it seems like maybe at best like making the best of the bad situation of like we have this network TV show, we have to make this amenable to the format of network TV in some way. And then uh, like the inclusion of those characters may I mean I don't know, like there there's something to the intense weirdness of those characters that makes it seem kind of intentional because also Hannibal is it's a really dark show and like the um the the play of like the way that it like skewers the power of like the the medical gaze and like the psychiatrist gaze is like the thing that makes it like really horrifying to me um like like i actually do occasionally have trouble sleeping after uh after watching some episodes but uh but also it is also it it's a very funny show too huh. i i will yeah the that the humor was not lost on me in that first episode um I, I think one of the things that I think really caught me um, to tie back into what we were saying sort of at the top of this conversation regarding the show's um, workarounds towards network restrictions when it comes to its gore um, mm. and its grotesqueness, uh, it got to my squeamish side in a really unexpected way and in a way that I imagine this show does a lot. I imagine there's way more of this, which is a discussion about cannibalism um, a discussion mm. about like, oh, why would he eat this girl's liver or something, blah, blah, blah. And then a hard cut to Hannibal eating like what looks to be like pork shoulder or something. Like, and like this. And it's not. It's not. Okay. I figured. I had to figure it's not. Um, but like this beautifully presented uh, meat dish that is like garnished and it is like just shy of food porn. But when you know who Hannibal Lecter is and you know when the conversation is, it is the most revolting thing. It's like it's like mm-hmm. it just, if you paralleled shots from Jiro Dreams with sushi, of sushi with discussion of like eating human flesh, it would yeah. be horrific. And it it, it captured it was an unexpected uh, turn of events for me for sure. Yeah, and that was actually um, I know one uh, one reservation I remember you had about the show Paxton was like why you know. Like yeah, why, why Hannibal really? And I think that like one thing that especially the early episodes benefit from in terms of this being like kind of a reboot of uh, of of the Hannibal intellectual property or whatever, is that you get that kind of uh, you you get that fun dramatic irony where you're introduced like someone goes like anyway, and this is Hannibal Lecter, and wink, you go wink. yeah you're yeah it's like oh you're a villain, and then like every and then. They, they play with that kind of like where the the audience and Hannibal are the only people that know that Hannibal is a villain 
and like they they managed to like get a lot of like fun kind of just like oh he's a oh man he he he's he's a bad boy and they don't know it yet um but yeah like the thing that honestly i really do feel like watching this show could really make someone a vegan you know like that like that i think that's actually that would be a very acceptable response to watching this show because yeah like you get these basically the hannibal cooking montages are to are to the show what like the meth montages were to breaking bad you know just like this like really kind of like this like craftsmanship and like this like weird like craftsman like appreciation of craftsmanship for something that is not good and and, like, and gorgeously shot which breaking bad had too like those those montages yeah. in breaking bad like where they're like breaking up the meth on a tray like it is like it is beautiful it's this blue crystalline thing and it's like you get the close-up shots of the meth and it like becomes like you're entering this weird dreamscape void and then you immediately remember exactly what they're doing and you're like ha 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 and it's it's has that same effect here yeah and i I think it's honestly i think it's like more effective in hannibal because you get a lot of those there are a lot of those montages and they're like more i think openly nefarious uh honestly just because like one there are just so many of them like they're occasionally like kind of they're occasionally kind of silly but i think they're also like there is something about the the way in which like their human the humanness of the people who have been killed gets abstracted in the act of cooking that kind of ends up like condemning the act of cooking meat i think in like ways that are like really interesting huh huh yeah Um, i I don't know i was just thoroughly pleasantly surprised by the show um whether or not i continue with it uh it it does remain to be seen right now mm -hmm. um simply because it's just another show and i have to dedicate to be sure it's something i want to dedicate my time to um but i i enjoyed i enjoyed the pilot a lot more than expected and it does kind of raise this question that we touched on a little bit before this episode of like when is a when is a reboot necessary and it's a question that i feel like there's no easy answer to because like i think a remake they're going to make remakes of everything all the time. And they have been since the beginning of filmmaking, of course. Um, But like, I think most people would agree that a remake is really only a good idea uh, when the original is flawed or when there's a unique perspective you can bring to the table. So classic examples are like John Carpenter's the thing uh, remaking mm-hmm. a thing from the the thing from the other world, which just basically retroactively made the original movie pointless. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, I want to say David Carradine, but not uh, <laughs> David Cronenberg. Uh, David Cronenberg's yeah. The Fly uh, mm-hmm. again, sort of rendering the original Fly pointless. Um, a few a few films like that, and then others like I get, like Peter Jackson's King Kong, which does not render the original film pointless, but it has a lot of merit in its own respect and does enough unique yeah. things with the concept that it stands on its own. Um, in those cases, a remake is is uh, is is a commendable thing. Reboots are much more questionable because they aren't necessarily retconning um, previous works; they're expanding upon them ages later. And it's uh, often to, uh, almost always, to capitalize on nostalgia. The, the, the yeah. intentions behind them 
are rarely because a filmmaker went, you know what, I can do it better. Or, you know what, there's more to say here. Sometimes, I think, but but not too often. But yeah, like we are definitely in a contemporary economic situation that privileges remakes and reboots and sequels. We all we all know this and I think we're all pretty tired of it to some extent or another. Yeah. And and I think but what what is interesting is that now with these to tie into our conversation at the top of the episode with these reboots of things like MTV animation specifically, um maybe to a lesser extent Beavis and Butthead or Daria, but certainly for things like Clone High or Eon Flux or um, another thing that we didn't really mention was announced to get rebooted a long time ago that we have talked about on the show before is Undergrads, um, another show yeah. of that ilk of that era. Um, shows that never really had their moment in the sun at the time. Um, they sort of came and went. Maybe they had a small audience. They had a cult following that built a little bit over the years, but Clone High had 13 episodes. That was it. Um, undergrads had like i want to say 20 uh eon flux had i think two seasons a lot of those shows were not around long um, and they didn't get their chance to make their mark because they were marketed poorly they were used to sort of fill time slots mtv didn't have confidence in them and the network era made these shows a lot less accessible to a lot of people uh, to a lot of their target demos um and so now this is these are examples of things where it's like oh these are really great works that never they never got to have their natural send-off that they deserved a lot of passion was put into these projects and that passion was not admired or respected um by mass audiences till years later if ever um and so this is an example of like hey reboots can actually have merit i mean again they're still being done i would imagine because mtv uh is not doing so hot these days and needs they they need an ace in the hole here so again the the intentions behind their development maybe are slightly uh disappointing but the actual product itself getting this attention in the modern day is an exciting thing artistically Yeah. And I mean, like the thing that's really, I think, complicated about, you know, like the issue of reboots and remakes and like sequels, et cetera, is that, yeah, like, well, especially with like these like reboots or whatever, where there is this like time where things do garner a following. Like, it's really kind of sad that like the reason that a lot of these things get rebooted is because they develop this cult following and some you know someone wearing an overpriced suit somewhere says ah this will sell now yeah because the right people now think this thing is cool and we can market it and then the people who didn't know it was cool before can hop on board and get on the bandwagon and yeah yeah exactly yeah Um, and yeah and it's like really um i don't know it's rough that like that you know, as always, it's rough that profit motive ends up being the metric by which like these things live or die. And yeah, I guess it's, it is still nice to see these things come back. And I'd be interested in like something like the clone high reboot, for example, like if it also becomes a way to like, actually recapture that like that cheap aesthetic too. like, does that get aestheticized? And does that get to be represented in, uh, in a market of a car of animation that's like a little more homogenous than it has been before i am of the belief that like the uh that era of mtv animation is frankly the peak of television animation that might be because it, it, i'm sure there's nostalgia tied to that i'm sure there's a lot of personal biases that are attached to that but uh, uh i am ultimately of the mind that that is really the best tv animation ever got at least aesthetically speaking 
Um, and so if that in some way, shape or form can get popularized and uh, maybe create like a new wave of animation of that similar uh, uh, vibe, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it's a sort of weird choice of words, but the point still stands. Um, I think that's a pretty exciting thing. So it'll be interesting to see what this entails. Uh, I think that is going to have to do it for us this week. Mm -hmm. um, but a delight as always. Uh, now, I also want to thank, didn't mention this at the top of the show, but I do want to thank uh, my old co-host Glenn for returning from the Spanish countryside to, uh, to join us here on this project. Um, it's, a, it's an honor and a privilege to have uh, just a, an absolute radio legend back on the show. So uh, <laughs> it'll, be, it'll really be exciting. I think this is going to do great things for our ratings to, to have a name like that attached to our show. So thank you, Glenn. Thank you, Glenn. All right. Uh, stay safe and stay healthy, everybody. Yeah, take care, everyone. <laughs>